So last week, church, we did look at one of the best gospel verses in the whole Bible in Galatians 2, 16. And if last week was the gospel itself, now this week in our text, Paul will answer some possible topics that someone might bring up as a response to this gospel. And you can see that actually right away in the first couple verse, or words of our, of our passage in verse 17, where Paul starts our passage with, but if... In our endeavor to be justified in Christ, meaning, but if all this that we talked about last week about justification in Jesus alone by faith alone is true, if this gospel is true, then what about these other topics? And so that's what we're going to see this morning, some implications of the gospel with topics that perhaps people would have brought up in response to the gospel. Which brings us to a simple outline of how we're going to go through, the, through these verses together. So in our text, we're essentially going to see Paul talk about how the gospel, about really how Jesus himself relates to three topics. Three topics. And so as for an outline, we're simply going to have three sections with one topic for each section. And first, we'll see what the gospel means concerning Christ and my sin. And then second, we'll see what the gospel means concerning Christ and my following of the Old Testament law. And then third, we'll see what the gospel means concerning Christ and my life. So in summary, three topics. First, my sin. Second, my possible following of the Old Testament law. And then third, my life. What I really say in an overarching way, we're basically asking this morning from God's word, but if this gospel of being justified in Jesus alone is true, which it is, then what does it mean for my sin? What does it mean for me in following the Old Testament law? And what does it mean for me as I now live my life? That said then, let's just begin our first section. And here, again, we'll look at what the gospel means concerning Christ and my sin. For this, we're just going to be in verse 17. So look down your Bibles, Galatians 2, 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. So Paul's anticipating some questions, right, with that but if. And his first topic he brings up here is us all being sinners. And that's pretty obvious concerning that, that, that we're all sinners. But he says really two things in this verse about us and our sin. Two things, and, and they're pretty clear. First is what he says in the middle of that verse, right? But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, In other words, he's making it plain that part of this gospel of justification by Christ in Christ alone, one of the most basic but honestly pretty profound truths and implications is that we too, all of us in the gospel, are found to be sinners. Now, remember, in context, in the first century here, that statement was a big deal. Because remember from last week, verse 15, where with certain Jewish people in mind, Paul said that they knew that they were not Gentile sinners. And Paul said that because the the Jews really back in the day so commonly thought of the, the Gentiles, which just means the nations, the nations who didn't know Yahweh, they thought of them as the real sinners. But now in verse 17 here, he's saying that part of the gospel message of being justified in Christ is that they realize they are sinners too. Ours, he says elsewhere in Romans 3, 9, this is more famous, he says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. 
For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. All right, so that's the context for why he says that. But not for us. This, this is pretty simple. Right, we know that in the gospel, we too are found to be sinners. And yet, even though that's simple, I do encourage all of us sitting here this morning to really let that sink in. <laughs> because although we may doctrinally hold that everyone is sinful, let's be honest, it's, it's, it's oh so easy to become just like the people that Paul's kind of addressing here in verses 15 and 17. Because it's easy to know, to know in your mind, of course we're all sinners, but then in your heart to really think, yeah, well sure, we're all sinners, I get that, but come on, right? Those people who do that stuff are the real sinners. Or who push those agendas, or who are living for those things, or or are doing and saying those certain things. And as it was for the Jews back then with their relationship with the Gentiles, as we think about those things, it could be that some of the things we're thinking about are really sin. But still, the, the biblical, apostolic Jesus emphasis that we all need to hear over and over is that in the gospel message of Jesus Christ, the overarching point about sin isn't that this person sins that much and this person has, happens to sin a, a little less. Right? Instead, the overarching point of the gospel message about sin is we're all sinners. So so yes, some sin in this way, some sin in that way, some sin in more outwardly heinous ways, some in more quiet ways, some in religious ways, some in secular ways, but the foundational and emphatic reality about sin in the gospel is we're all sinners. The gospel tells us that over and over. And, And that is humbling, but it's also what points us to Jesus which keeps us from pride, and it's what enables us to be people truly of love. Which then leads us to the second thing Paul says about sin in verse 17. And it's the second thing that honestly is a little more confusing to us, but this was a major argument that people did use against the gospel back then. To see it hinted, look, to see it hinted at, look again at verse 17, but focus on the ending. Paul says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners... Is Christ then a servant of sin? (laughs) Certainly not. So that second half of verse 17 is is strange. (laughs) I mean, who would think that Christ is a servant of sin because we're all sinners? (laughs) And yet, without getting into it too much, it was this sort of argument that people did use back then. And it basically ran something like this. I mean, if the gospel is really about teaching us that we're all sinners... Right? And if the gospel is so much about grace being shown to sinners, then man, it sounds like Christ loves sin. <laughs> right? It sounds like Christ wants us to sin, even supports us sinning, even as a servant of sin. All because part of the gospel is how we're all sinners, and he loves to show grace to sinners. <laughs> right? And you see this sort of reasoning most clearly in Romans 3 and especially Romans 6 as well. But here, just like he does in Romans 6, if you know that, Paul's response to such reasoning is about as strong as it can be in the original Greek. Because as you can see at the end of verse 17, his response is, certainly not. 
Right? And those two words, just so you know, in the original language, are hard to kind of translate. It was an idiom back in their day. It's, it's meganoita, and it means something like, no way, or certainly not. Or you've probably heard translations say, may it never be, or really, may you never even talk like that. Which then, in a way, shows us really the second thing that we see about sin here. Because yes, Christ's gospel shows us that we're all sinners. And yes, grace can surpass any sin in the gospel. But that doesn't mean that Christ then loves sin. Right? Certainly not. And not for us. Right? This may be a point that you're sitting there like, okay, that makes sense, but I, I never think like that. And thank God, we probably don't think like that, most of us here. But also... This verse does warn us that if and when we start to reason in our own minds that because the gospel is true, then that, that it's okay if I sin here because God loves me. Or it's okay if I transgress in this area because God is gracious. Because I hope you're seeing that in those moments that we do that, although we're not explicitly thinking Christ is a servant of sin, foundationally what's going on is we're thinking that because of the gospel, Jesus is kind of okay with my sin. And so it's in those moments, right, that we need to hear this, certainly not. (laughs) Because Jesus does forgive all our sins, and he does love us. But the only correct and spirit-led response to what Jesus has done in the gospel is to now go and live for his glory and seek to sin less, not more. So that's our first section. That's the gospel implications concerning Christ and his sin. Which leads now to our second section and our second topic this morning. And here we'll see what the gospel means concerning Christ and my following of the Old Testament law. And for this, we're going to be in verses 18 and 19. So look down your Bibles, verses 18 and 19. Paul continues. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. So we'll actually start in verse 19 on this because verse 19 is, is the final logical ground of Paul's argument. And all I mean by that is, as you can see for yourself, pa- Paul's line of thought starts in verse 17 with the idea of sin. And then in verse 18, it's, it starts with four. And then verse 19 starts with four again, while verse 20 doesn't. And all that means, if that sounds confusing, is that Paul's making an argument in verses 17, 18, and 19 about sin and the law. And verse 19 is his final point of the argument. So what does he say in verse 19? For, because through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Now we'll talk about that living to God in our next section, but for now... We'll talk more about this idea of through the law, I died to the law. Because you may be thinking, what in the world does that mean? And how does that apply to me today? And to answer that right to the beginning, we need to know that the law here is the law of Moses, specifically the first five books of the Old Testament, but also generally the law referred to all the laws in the Old Testament. And so whenever the Apostle Paul is talking about the law, that's what he's talking about. 
He's not talking about, just to be clear, he's not talking about laws of governments because Paul will tell us elsewhere, we know this in his word, that we are supposed to submit to laws of governments like in Romans 13. Instead here, he's talking about the law of the Old Testament. So that's the topic. And then as you can see though, the verb that he decides to use here when talking about Christians and the Old Testament law is that verb, I died to the law. This is something Paul talks like in other places too. And the reason he does so because most scholars will point out, for Paul, this idea of dying to something, like dying to sin, or dying to the world, or dying to the law, all has this idea of something no longer having force over you, a dominant force over you. And so the idea of dying to the law is Paul's way of saying that in Christ now, the Old Testament law no longer has that binding force on the Christian. And if you're curious, this is a topic he expounds on in a whole chapter in Romans 7. But that's the idea here. We all died to the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law no longer has binding force on us. Now, this doesn't mean we don't read it, memorize it, study it, see God's heart and plan and intentions in it, because we should all do that. We should do that, because the whole Old Testament is still God's word, and it's God's word for us to read, but... That being said, it's Jesus' apostles who, remember, were Jewish themselves. It's Jesus' apostles who were crystal clear that we as Christians are dead to the law. Or as Paul will say elsewhere, we are no longer under the Old Testament law. And that was true for Jewish Christians back then, and it's true for us today. So that's the idea of dying to the law, and I hope we get that. But perhaps more fascinating, verse 19 is what else here Paul subtly says about the law. And this is something he will develop a lot more later in Galatians 3 and 4, but it's only summarized here in verse 19 with just three words. And that's how he says, through the law, I died to the law. (laughs) Now think with me a second on what that means, because it's quite profound. So, So most people understand, or maybe now you understand, that in Christ we're no longer bound to the Old Testament law. But the question is, how did that happen? Or how did that dying to the Old Testament law come about? Well, it didn't come about randomly, nor was it something where God changed his mind on the Old Testament law because he thinks it wasn't working and he had to go a different route. Instead, the through the law I died to the law is teaching us that it's the Old Testament law itself that was always aiming at people eventually being dead to it. Meaning, when Paul says that this death to the law happened through that same law, he's saying that the law was always meant to end that way. It was always meant to be a pointer to the fact that we're sinners and eventually lead us to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And again, this is what Paul's going to talk about, if you know Galatians at all, a lot more in chapters 3 and 4. So we'll be talking about this a lot as a church if you have questions when we get there. But for now, this then is why, church, we don't follow the Old Testament law the way the Israelites did. Because the Old Testament isn't just something that we don't follow now like they did for no reasons. Instead, the point here is the Old Testament was always God's pointer to Christ. And so, here's really the important part. If we then think 
that we need to follow the Old Testament law, we're actually getting the law itself wrong. Because <laughs> I hope you see that for yourself. Because through the law, through that Old Testament, we were always meant to die to the law so we could live with Christ. Or as Paul says again in Romans 10.4, and I think this is even more clear, Romans 10.4, Christ is the end or goal or telos. Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the end of it. Which finally on this topic of law brings us to verse 18. So that was all verse 19, but above that is what Paul says in 18. And to remember, look down at your Bibles again, verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So now with the context of verse 19 explained a little bit, hopefully verse 18 is making a little more sense. Because the rebuilding what I tore down is referring to someone who perhaps agrees that they're not justified by the law, meaning they rightly tear down the Old Testament law for salvation, but then after being saved, they go back to thinking that they need to obey the Old Testament law. They rebuild it. And that be, might be less common in churches today, but was common back then. Because, because think about it. It is weird. It's weird to say that we aren't bound by the Old Testament law. I, mean, I hope you feel that. This is God's word and God gave it. So it's hard for us to actually think we're dead to the law. That we actually don't have the Old Testament law binding on us the way it was for the ancient Israelites. But again, this isn't me. That's exactly what Paul, the Apostle Paul, is telling us. But more important than that, though, is what Paul also says about the law here in verse 18 at the end. And this is our last point about the gospel and my following of the law. It's how he says, if I rebuild what I tore down, meaning if I think I need to follow the whole Old Testament law after being saved, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now, now, I know that might sound a bit strange. We'll talk about it, but people will point out that out of everything Paul said in verses 17 through 19, that's by far the most bold. Because think about what he's saying. In verse 19, he says that the law was always meant to point to Christ. And, and so if you think that you need to obey the Old Testament law, remember verse 19 was telling us, well, you're misunderstanding the law itself. But here in verse 18, it's similar but stronger. It's if you rebuild and think or teach that you need to obey the Old Testament law after being saved, you're actually transgressing, sinning by doing that. I'm proving I'm a transgressor by rebuilding what should be torn down in Christ. And in a way, that's mind-boggling. But it's so applicable to us because this is a strong statement against well-intentioned but not Jesus-given giving law-keeping religiosity. And here's what I mean by that. So, so think about what was going on here. It's so helpful. Think about the context of what was going on here that would make Paul write this. These were people who perhaps it seems acknowledged now that they were saved by grace alone. And so they tore down obeying the Old Testament law for salvation. But then after being saved, they made it again all about the Old Testament law. They thought and they taught you need to now again obey it all. And, and why were they doing that? Well, here's the kicker. Presumably they were doing that because they didn't want to sin. <laughs> right? That's a good motive. And remember, that was the Pharisees' motive as well. 
The Pharisees, I hope you know, developed as a group after the exile. That's why they're not found in the Old Testament because they developed in the years after the Old Testament was finished being written. They developed after the exile in history and they made up all those rules because they didn't want to sin. And similarly here, these are people who resorted to obeying the Old Testament law most likely because they really didn't want to sin. And yet, boldly, Paul says that if you do that, if you acknowledge that you're saved in Christ alone, and then it becomes something where you go back and rebuild and make the faith all about following rules and the Old Testament law, it's that that's actually sinful. I mean, that's amazing. Meaning, in their goal to sin less, they were sinning because they were making it all about obeying the rules again. I mean, how counterintuitive is that? I mean, that's why we so need God's New Testament word and to stick to God's word alone. Because again, think of the Pharisees. That's exactly what it was for them. They were trying to sin less, so they made and build, built up all these rules, but it was those rules for them that were sinful because they were adding to God's word, and that's what Jesus made point over and over again. Now for us then, I want to be clear here. First, as to how all of this about the law specifically applies to us, as we've said a few times now, it's that we as Christians are no longer under the Old Testament law. Right? We aren't. Instead, the law was God's, technically, if you want to put it this way, it was his binding historical covenant with the ancient Israelites. The law was put in place, as Paul will say later in Galatians, right, as a tutor, as a teacher to lead us to Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that, again, we don't read and love the Old Testament, but still, the specific application and truth is that we as Christians are no longer under the law. Through the law, I died to the law. So that's a specific application. But then as for a more general way to apply God's word here, what we also see in these verses is they, they steer us away from the same sort of spirit of law-keeping that was in the Pharisees and that was in these people who just wanted again to follow the Old Testament law. Because although we might not be pushing, following everything in the Old Testament law like they did, still the same rebuilding mindset still happens when we as Christians think that our faith is all about rules or especially when we add a bunch of rules to God's word because yes we are to follow Christ and Christ does have loving rules for us and, and we do follow what he said to us in the New Testament and through his apostles. But overall, the apostolic emphasis is that we're not to be people who look at what it means to be a Christian and think primarily rules. When we see that elsewhere in the New Testament, like how Paul will strangely say, it's kind of strange, he says that we as Christians are, quote, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. And that's because Rule following simply is not the primary calling of the Christian life. Instead, primarily the Christian life is more defined by things like true life, like we'll see in a second, and freedom and holiness, meaning being like God and love. And this means we shouldn't think 
that Christ saved us so that we can't do this or that. Again, we do obey Christ and what he has told us because we want to. And yes, we shouldn't call those, we should and, and can call those rules, but primarily we're not just about following rules. And we certainly don't want to make up extra rules. Instead, our goal is to avoid sin, but more so when you read the New Testament, our goal is to live like Christ in true life and freedom and holiness and love. Or as verse 19 says at the end, we die to the law, not so we can all of a sudden follow just different law and more law in different ways, but so that we may truly live to God. (laughs) Truly live, not just try to follow rules. Which then finally transitions us to our third and final topic this morning. So we've seen how the gospel relates to Christ and my sin and Christ and my following of the law. And now finally, we'll see how the gospel relates to Christ and my life. Meaning I'm I'm saved in Christ's death, but now what does that mean for the life that I now live? And here's where verse 20 comes in. And concerning this verse, this verse is rightly one of the most famous verses in the Bible. And because of that, we will cover it only briefly this morning, and we're actually going to spend all of next week on it because it's such a beautiful verse. But for this morning, we're just going to look at it broadly and see how it applies to us in context. But that said, what does the gospel mean concerning Christ in my life? We'll look down at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So as you can see, one of the main things here, or the main thing Paul talks about in this verse is death and life, in that order. Death and life. Because we often think, and it makes sense, we often think life and then death. But notice in verse 19, it's I died to the law so that I might live to God. And in verse 20 here, it's being crucified with Christ and me no longer living first, and then it's Christ living in me and me living by faith. And so death and then life. And again, we'll cover this more in detail next week, but in very brief, that's, that's really the main idea here in verse 20 in answering the question, what does the gospel mean for my life? Well, the answer is first, for those of us who trust in Christ, we've all experienced a real death a death to our sins, a death to the law, a death to just wanting to live a life of sin. And we've experienced that death because we've been crucified with Christ. Meaning when he died on that cross, because he was dying for my personal sins that he knows everything about, I, in a way, died with him. My, own, my old sinful ways and my nature were nailed to that cross. And so that's our gospel death. But then, because of that death, the point then is that we now really are alive. (laughs) Yes, we struggle with sin, but we have new life in Christ. And And the amazing thing about verse 20 is that this life is so new that we can say things like in the first half, in a way... It's it's no longer I who live, but actually Christ who's living in me. Because the idea there is, I I know I'm so sinful, and so this new life really is just Christ living in me, and so to him be all the glory. But also, that's why this verse is so great, because it still is us living, we can also say about this new life, and yet I also do live 
but I live by faith in the Son of God. Meaning because of what Jesus did, what dominates this life I now live? How do I live? I live by trusting in Jesus. So that's most of verse 20. In brief, in the gospel, we died with Christ and now we really do have new life in him and that life is defined by him in us and us trusting him. That finally brings us though to that last clause of verse 20. And this is beautiful. And I want you to know that this is actually extremely rare for Paul because when he's writing his letters to churches, he almost always talks about we or us, or you, when he talks about the gospel and Christ's death. And yet, notice how verse 20 ends. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now again, we will talk about this more next week, but perhaps on this final topic of what the gospel means for my life, it's this that will hopefully stick with a lot of us. Because let's be honest, some of us are more prone, we're more prone to to think about God and about the gospel and who he is and and we may like talking about topics like new life and maybe even coming to church and hearing God's word and all that is good and biblical. But if we're mainly people about ideas and topics and church and talking about God generally and God's people, what can easily happen is we can miss the intimate personal emphasis of our gospel. And that's that if you trust in Christ, you can say with full confidence, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. Because it means that when Christ went to that cross, I mean history, when he really went to that cross, he gave himself for me there. Jesus didn't just die for his people, plural. He died for each person in his people. And so again, if you trust in Christ, that's you. That's me. I mean, he died for you intimately, knowing each and every one of your sins, suffering for you, rising for you. And why? Well, because he loves you. I mean, really, he loves you. Like the best love you've ever experienced, like the most care you've ever felt, but greater. Which really, if we think about it, brings us full circle then in verse 20. Because I really do think the reason Paul gets personal like this here in verse 20 is because this dying for me and loving me not only defines your life, but it is what enables me to trust him, to happily Trust him. It's why we can each say, I live by faith, by trust in him. And to be clear, therefore, it's not a trust in him like, I guess I have to trust in him because he's God. It's instead, I trust in him because who else would I rather lean on? Myself? I fail all the time. Others? They're sinners too. They can let us down. Would I rather trust in chance or what I can do, what this world can give me, or what I can accumulate? That's all frightening. Instead, the Christian's glad confidence is saying, I trust in Jesus, 
who loved me and gave himself for me. So that's our three topics in most of our texts. Talking about how Paul, Paul talking about how the gospel relates to Christ and my sin, to the law and to my life. Brings us to conclude verse 21. And this wasn't part of our three sections because most people studying this text will point out that verse 21 is clearly by Paul a way to conclude all of verses 15 through 20, which is why the ESV has them in one section. So that last week and this week. Because if we were to summarize the, the, the idea from last week before we read this verse, remember the main idea is that being saved and being counted righteous isn't through the law, but it's through faith in Christ, trusting Christ. And then if we were to briefly summarize what we've just seen this week, we could say that it's after being saved, we don't try to be righteous by obeying the law and making it all about laws. Instead, as you can see, Paul's point is we primarily live by faith in Christ. And so both our salvation and our living is about Christ and trusting him and what he has said to us. Which leads Paul to conclude with verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So again, you can feel Paul's being bold in God's word here. And he brings up a new topic in verse 21. Grace. Hasn't been here yet. God treating us better than we could ever deserve. And you can see his logic. I do not nullify or cancel or reject. You can translate that word. I don't reject the grace of God. And why? I mean, Paul, how would you do that? For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And so he's using an argument technically from the absurd, right, to prove a point. Because it's absurd to think that the Messiah, the Son of God, died for no purpose. And yet Paul's point is that, number one, back to last week, if you think that your righteousness, your justification, your salvation initially is because you were good enough, then you're saying, you're rejecting the grace of God and you're saying Christ didn't really die for any purpose. And then number two, back to this week, this is why it concludes this week, it's also, it's also this would be the case if you say, that yes, you're saved by Christ, but then you go back to it mainly being about man-made rules of the Old Testament law, you're also essentially saying that Christ died for no purpose because Christ died not for that, but so that we could truly live to God, not just follow the law. Which leads us to conclude that way as well because the real danger The real danger after all that last week and after everything this week is to hear all that and say, sure, I get that, but then not to really apply it to your life or to your faith. Because the danger is first to hear all this, especially from last week, and then just kind of go back to trying to be a decent person to be okay with God. Or, number two, the danger is to embrace Christ, but then to go and to rebuild, make it about the law and rules. And that's why Paul says firmly in verse 21 that if you do either of those things, you are nullifying the grace of God. You'll be effectively looking at God's grace, God's grace in salvation, and God's grace in the Christian life, and you'll be saying, now nah, I'll, I'll do it my way. I, I understand that, but I want to be good enough to kind of be okay with God. Or, or I understand that, but I want to make it about me and my life and how I follow my rules. 
And so the takeaway for all of us is to not nullify God's grace like that, but instead to embrace God's grace. What a joyful thing that the Bible just wants us to embrace grace. I mean, this means that we embrace the fact happily that we are not saved by anything that we do, but by Christ alone. And we embrace happily that our Christian life is still not really about us and what we can do and what laws we can follow. Instead, it's still about Christ's righteousness and his grace. (laughs) Now again, one last time, to be super clear, this doesn't mean we should go and just live however we want. You can see why, though, maybe people talked like that because the gospel is pretty amazing like this. But we shouldn't do that, and that's why verse 17 that we started with is in God's word. Certainly not. We're not just going to go live however we want. But all this about grace does mean that once again, the defining truth, the banner over our lives isn't that we're good enough to be on God's side, nor that we now live and obey good enough to be God's people. Neither of those are true. Instead, the defining truth over our lives is God is gracious. <laughs> or, to say it one last way, the defining truth over our lives is as Paul says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me.